hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Colonel Mo Davis who's running for office in North Carolina's 11th Congressional District. Colonel Mo Davis, thank you for joining me. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. You've said that you feel a similar call to service now as you did 25 years ago when you joined the U.S. military. What was that moment that made you run for office to, as you did while you're in the army, protect your country from threats, both foreign and domestic? Well, the main thing is uh, this part of North Carolina was heavily gerrymandered by the Republican Party. Uh, Asheville, which is uh, where I live, was uh, Asheville is a very uh, democratic, you know, it's, it's a blue dot in a sea of red. I've often referred to Asheville as kind of the Berkeley of the Blue Ridge because it's a very progressive, forward-leaning, uh, accepting community. But you can go, you know, 10 miles either direction and you're in, uh, you know, deep red uh, Trump country. Uh, so the Republicans here in North Carolina basically split Asheville down the middle to dilute the Democratic vote. And they put half in the 11th district, which was uh, the Mark Meadows uh, area. And the other half, they put in Patrick McHenry, which is uh, to the east of here. And it was just mathematically impossible for a, a Democrat to win in this area because both the 10th and the 11th districts were 25 plus point uh, Republican leaning districts. So uh, pretty much uh, for McHenry or for Meadows, all they had to do is put their name on the ballot and they were guaranteed to win. But in November, the state courts here intervened and told the uh, state legislature they either had to redraw the map themselves or the court would do it for them. And it became apparent that uh, they were going to put uh, Asheville, and Asheville is part of Buncombe County, that they were going to put those back together because you couldn't explain how it got divided other than trying to rig the system uh, for the Republicans. So when they did that, um, I mean, it's still a Republican-leaning district, but there's a, a genuine opportunity uh, for a Democrat to win. And I looked at the other folks that were running. There were four others. There were five of us in the Democratic primary, and the other four were good people. And I, you know, policy-wise, we're all fairly similar in our approaches. But I just didn't see anyone that running that I thought had, uh, you know, the record and the resources and the reach it was going to take to uh, to be competitive against uh, who. At the time, Mark Meadows was still running, but whoever the candidate was. So I, I kind of looked at it and figured, you know, if not me, who? So uh, I chose to get in and uh, uh, things turned out well. You talked there about gerrymandering, which is a, a huge issue when it comes to essentially voter suppression in a way. It's stopping people from having a fair access to the ballot box because it's rigging the system for people that don't know, essentially rigging the system so that you fence off a district to make it either strong red or strong blue, for example. What can be done here to stop this practice of gerrymandering? Is it something that Congress can pass a law? Is it something that would have to go to the Supreme Court to pass a law that, that stops this from happening? Because it's clearly a situation that creates unjust and unfair elections, not just for the candidates running, but for the people in those districts who want to be able to fairly choose their representative. Now, you're exactly right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's said that with gerrymandering, it's not the 
the citizens choosing their their elected official is the elected official choosing his citizens because you can you know as was done here you can rig it to where whoever the uh, you know which and to be honest now you know Republicans and Democrats both have, have a history of having done this over time so it's you know I don't want to put all the blame on on one side or the other but whichever side does it is wrong because in a democracy it ought to be a fair elections where you know the citizens pick based upon you know the character of the candidates and the ideas of the candidates and how they uh, reflect the values of the area that they're representing. So I, it's not really something that Congress could legislate. Uh, elections are generally a matter of state and local law. You know, for instance, like you know, here in North Carolina, we have the North Carolina Board of Elections that oversees elections statewide. So it's not a federal function. And then every county has their own county board of elections that administer elections at the local level. Um, so I really don't see anything that Congress could necessarily do to preclude gerrymandering. It would really be uh, an issue for the courts, which, you know, as I said here in North Carolina, it was this, in, actually in June of last year, our, our U.S. Supreme Court ruled that partisan gerrymandering, you know, drawing lines to favor a party was not unconstitutional unconstitutional under the U.S. Constitution. And then months later in, in uh, November, our state court intervened and said that under our state constitution, it was not, it was denying equal protection to all the, to the voters by rigging the outcome. So in my view, what it would take is just a commitment at the state level that we're going to draw lines fairly. And there are means to do that. Like clearly, if you followed the history here in North Carolina, there was a concerted effort, you know, to draw the lines the way they were drawn to favor the Republicans. So like in our last, in the 2018 congressional elections, North Carolina has, there are 13 districts. And the vote, if you look at how the, the, the vote split on election day, it was, uh, there were slightly more Democratic votes than Republican votes. But the Democrats ended up getting three seats and the Republicans got 10. So the only way you can achieve that kind of result is through some type of manipulation. And the way that was done was by manipulating the lines. And so we had, we had some districts here that, you know, almost looked like a blood splatter. Uh, there were no real rhyme or reason you could logically explain other than an effort to, to rig the outcome. So, you know, they're, they're, uh, computer programs out there and academics that have looked at the issue. And there, there are ways to fairly uh, draw the lines to keep them because the, the way it has been counties, as I mentioned, like here in Asheville, Asheville, the city was split down the middle, as was the county. There are ways to draw the lines where you can, uh, for the most part, keep counties and municipalities as a whole and you can evenly balance. I mean, for congressional seats, it's generally about 600,000 residents per district. And um, we're due next year anyway. The, the Currently, our, our, you know, once a decade, we do the census. We're in the process of doing that now. Uh, North Carolina is expected to pick up at least one more seat in Congress and perhaps two. Uh, so the, the lines are going to get redrawn again. Uh, after the census anyway. So I'm hoping that uh, whichever party uh, has a majority in the legislature will make a commitment to try to, to draw the lines fairly and rather than trying, because you know, it's blatantly obvious what the, uh, the intent was and the way the lines were, were drawn.
you have raised concerns about threats to America's democracy. We're talking there about gerrymandering, which is one threat to American democracy. But there's been a lot of talk recently about attempts by the Republican Party to undermine elections in other ways by suppressing the vote. So we've seen voters taken off voter rolls. We've seen situations like down in Florida, where despite voters deciding that felons who serve their time should be given the right to vote, the governor's office there has attempted to keep those felons off electoral rolls by introducing further requirements that they have to have completed before they can have their right to vote returned. How concerned should Americans be about the domestic threats to their right to vote? Because we're aware of obviously Russian interference, for example, or other countries trying to get involved in US elections. But how concerned should they be about the domestic threat to their right to vote? I think they should be very concerned because, I mean, that's kind of the fundamental you know, basis upon which America was built was that notion of democracy, you know, one man, one vote. Um, it's a, uh, and you're exactly right in, in what you describe. There's a number of things that uh, you know, the Republican Party has done, particularly the, the Republican Party here in North Carolina is just, in my view, basically a, you know, a crime syndicate because they have done, you know, lie, cheat, steal, whatever it takes to retain power, they're willing to do it. And so one way of doing that is gerrymandering the lines to, you know, stack the deck. Uh, another way, is, as you mentioned, is voter suppression. And we've seen that a number of ways here, like with the voter ID law that requires that you have a, uh, a couple of authorized forms of photo identification. And the people that tend not to have that type of identification are usually uh, minorities, elderly and poor are the ones that generally don't have the you know, the capacity or the means to, to acquire those. So it's a, an effort to, you know, discourage them from voting. You mentioned, you know, purging the rolls, as some states have done, uh, disenfranchising felons. Like you were saying in Florida, what the governor tried to do there was that, uh, you know, the, the citizens voted that felons, after they served their sentence, should you know, have the right, their voting rights restored. And then the governor was going to add another condition that they had to have paid off any fines and fees that were connected with their uh, convictions. Um, yeah, so it's a, uh, to me, it seems like the Republican Party, their, their two biggest fears are democracy and demographics. And in that respect, I think they're, they remind me of a, a, a drown, a, you know, a man who's drowning, you know, who will grab onto anything to keep from going under the water. And I think that's what the Republican Party is. And they're not expanding their tent. I mean, if you've watched, uh, if you, if you watch, there was a news conference that you know, President Trump's been doing a daily news conference about the coronavirus. And clearly, you know, he's making no effort. He's, he's appealing to the, you know, to that nationalist sentiment that is kind of his base. And, um, you know, so the, the demographics here in this country are, are changing. And being uh, white and male is, uh, you know, not going to be the, you know, the prevailing uh, power structure that it has been in the past. And um, so I think they realize that uh, demographics, uh, the, the increase in minorities, the increasing power of women uh, are changing the game. And so they're trying to, as long as they can, rig the game in their favor 
because they know they're fighting the tide and eventually the tide wins. So, um, you know, we're in an unfortunate period, but I, I, I think we'll get through it and uh, hopefully come out better on the other side. But, and perhaps this, you know, this uh, coronavirus is going to have an effect on uh, how we look at voting as well. There's a bill being introduced in the Senate uh, to allow mail-in voting, which is what some states are, already do. So I think you know, the fundamental difference has been Democrats want to encourage as many people as possible to vote, and the Republicans want to uh, only uh, encourage the right people to vote, and right being defined by what's in, in their interest. So um, I, I'd like to see, uh, and, you know, there's some things we could do as well, like uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy over us celebra celebrating Columbus Day, because you know history has shown that uh, you know, Columbus probably doesn't merit a holiday. So take that day and make uh, move it to November, make it election day. Because now, you know, here in the States, our, our big elections are on you know, Tuesday in November. And for people that are working, it's sometimes difficult to, uh, to get out to the polls. So I think we ought to be looking at ways that we can, we can make voting easier and more accessible and, uh, to me, a democracy means, you know, the, the more people that participate, uh, the stronger the democracy is. When you initially announced that you were running for office, as you mentioned earlier, you were running against Mark Meadows, who later announced he was retiring. And more recently, that he's been appointed as Donald Trump's new White House chief of staff. Do you think you scared him out of the race and out of Congress? Well, I'm going to tell people I did, whether I did or not. Uh I, I don't know. You know, I, I, uh, a year ago, I was uh, I was a judge at the Department of Labor up in in, in Washington, uh, not far from Capitol Hill, where you know, Mark Meadows' office was. And there was a rumor going around over a year ago that uh, Meadows was not going to run for reelection, that uh, he wanted Mick Mulvaney's job as chief of staff, and that his intention was he wanted kind of a holding pattern. Uh, to where he could launch a bid in 2022 for Senator Richard Burr's seat, um, you know, who has announced, had already announced that he was not going to seek re-election in 2022. So, so far, two of those three things have come to pass. Uh, the only one that happened is uh, Meadows announcing he's going to run for Burr's seat. And as you've seen, Burr's now in hot water over his uh, uh, profiting off of his inside knowledge about the coronavirus. Um, so Burr may not make it to 2022, but uh, I guess the one thing that was a couple things that have been surprising about Meadows is, as I said, I you know I'd been hearing over a year ago he wasn't going to run, so I can't say I was surprised that he didn't. But what was surprising was the timing of his announcement that he was wasn't running. Um, the the filing period to run for Congress here in North Carolina was from December 2nd to the 20th. So you had an 18-day period. You could uh, you had to go to Raleigh to the state capitol and file your your uh, paperwork in order to run for office. And Meadows didn't announce until uh, Thursday, December the 19th. So the next to last day is when he announced that uh, he would not be running for re-election. So and your paperwork had to be in by noon on Friday. So essentially, you had folks that had just a little over 24 hours to get the application completed, to get to Raleigh and get it filed. And surprisingly, uh, there were 12 Republicans that managed to uh, meet the deadline. So it looked like to a lot of people that uh, he 
timed his announcement to uh, try to queue up uh, a friend of his wife, uh, Linda Bennett, because uh, Miss Bennett, uh, you know, within hours of Meadows announcing that he was not running, she announced that she was. Uh, she already had a website where she had registered the web domain months ago. Uh, so a lot of Republicans were angry with him that uh, he tried to stack the deck to put a friend in, in office because there are other, I think, Republicans that uh, felt like they had qualified candidates that were denied the opportunity to run uh, because he strung it out to the very end to announce he wasn't running. And then you know, here more recently, we had the, the primary on March 3rd. And it was shortly after that is when Meadows, uh, it was announced that he was going to become chief of staff and give up his seat in Congress. Uh, again, one of the, you know, the, the buzz going around was that was timed in order because, you know, the two people, that, the two Republicans in the runoff are Linda Bennett, who was his handpicked choice, and then Madison Cawthorn. And uh, at least the buzz going around was that the, the announcement he was moving to be chief of staff was timed to try to uh, allow Miss Bennett to get to fill the remaining part of his term. Because uh, the Republicans were arguing that the old, since Meadows represented the old 11th district, the gerrymandered district, that any special election to fill the rest of his term should be under those lines, which would be, as I said earlier, a mathematical impossibility for a Democrat to win. And if they did it under the old lines and it's been at one, then she'd be running in November as the incumbent, which gives her an, it would give her an advantage. But uh, for a variety of reasons, including the you know, the coronavirus, uh, I think it's the, the governor hadn't made an official announcement. He, he would have to uh, pick a date and, and announce a special election to fill the rest of Meadows' term. And I think it's unlikely that's going to happen. But you know, at least so far, it appears that that Mark Meadows has done everything uh, within his power to try to rig uh, uh, a path for a chosen successor. And that hadn't uh, sat well with uh, many Republicans in this area who resent that uh, rather than giving them the choice on who they wanted to represent them, that uh, Mark Meadows tried to cram it down their throats. You said there about Senator Richard Burr being in hot water and for those that don't know the situation around him is that he's the chair of the senate's intelligence committee and after publicly reassuring americans about the coronavirus he sold off up to 1.7 million dollars in his own stock on one day february 13th timing that has led critics to accuse him of improperly enriching himself off of the national crisis you called the North Carolina Republican Party like a crime syndicate. Do you think Senator Richard Burr should face criminal charges for his actions uh, and the other Republicans, uh, several other Republicans who've also been accused of doing similar actions? Yes, I think regardless of party, anyone who traded on inside information, you know, information that wasn't available to the general public for their own personal financial gain should be held accountable. I mean, that's a, if you're in public office, you're there to serve the public, not to serve yourself. And it appears that uh, Senator Burr and some others uh, appeared to have done that, that, uh, you know, the mark, the stock market here is down about a third from where it was you know, back when they first were briefed 
on the coronavirus. So they saved themselves some, uh, you know, big hits to their portfolios by acting, uh, you know, at least on, on the face of it, it appears they acted on the information that they had about the virus. Well, and as you said, you know, Senator Burr in particular was telling the general public, you know, kind of, uh, you know, stay calm, you know, everything's under control. The other uh, the thing about him, uh, you probably have seen as well, where it wasn't just that he appears to have acted for himself on that information, but at, at an exclusive gathering uh, on February 27th of, you know, wealthy uh, you know, individuals, certainly not uh, open to the general public, you know, he told that audience that the coronavirus you know, had the potential to be like the uh, the uh, uh, the flu epidemic back in 1918 that killed millions and millions of people. So uh, he gave them some advance warning while you know, he was telling the general public to uh, stay calm and uh, you know press on with life as normal. So that's you know it again. I think you know everyone is presumed innocent until they're proven guilty, and that would apply to uh, him as well. But it certainly warrants. Uh, you know, uh, investigation, and if it is at it, as it appears, then yes, he should be be held accountable. And there's a I, I just put up a petition recently on MoveOn.org uh, calling for him to resign because I can tell you from having served in the military, if you were an 18 year old uh, Army private or Air Force airman and and you worked in the contracting office and you had some kind of inside information about a company getting a, a contract and you use that information to go out and buy the stock or sell the stock to benefit yourself, you'd get kicked out of the military at the age of 18 for doing that. So uh, if we don't condone that kind of conduct for 18-year-old airmen and, and sailors and Army privates, then we shouldn't condone it for a member of the U.S. Senate. So uh, I think in order to restore... You know, the public right now, I think, is very distrustful of government. And you have a right to have uh, confidence that your government is acting in the best interest of the public. And I think uh, Burr has forfeited, uh, you know, any chance that the public trust in him uh, acting in their interest. So I think it's best if he, uh, if he resigns and that they, uh, someone else complete the uh, you know, fulfill his duties and, and represent the North Carolinians who uh, sent him there to be a public servant, not a self-servant. We've mentioned about your military service and you served over two decades, 25 years in the U.S. military. You were appointed during that time as the third chief prosecutor of the Guantanamo military commissions, which were authorized by presidential order for prosecuting detainees held in Guantanamo Bay. You've been quite critical of these military commissions, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But was it a mistake for George W. Bush's administration to have established the detention facility at Guantanamo in the first place? Or do you think that was the right move? No, it was clearly a mistake. It, uh, you know, America in the post-World War II era you know, we were the leading advocate for things like uh, the Geneva Conventions and the United Nations and the Convention Against Torture. So we were really good at preaching to others about the conduct we expected of them. And then on 9-11, when we were attacked, we threw all that out the window. We got scared. 
And we turned our back on the principles that uh, we had espoused for, for decades you know, for others. You know, Guantanamo was selected because there were some in the Bush administration that thought it was a law-free zone. They looked at it and said, you know, the international courts can't touch it. The Cuban courts can't touch it. They thought the American courts couldn't touch it. Of course, you know, history has proven that wrong. But that was why it was selected, because they thought it was a law-free area. That they were free to do anything they wanted to do there. I mean, it was intended to, uh, you know, exploit detainees for information. And uh, they thought, you know, what better place to do it than uh, right here on you know, Guantanamo, which is, you know, the oldest U.S. military installation outside the United States. We've been there since the uh, 1890s. Um, I guess another factor that played a role there, there was a, a detention facility from back in the days from the, the Haitian boat lift days from, uh, you know, a, more than a decade earlier. So there was an existing facility. It was on an area that uh, was under exclusive U.S. control. It was on a, in a foreign country. So some looked at it and thought it was, you know, the perfect spot uh, to take the detainees. And I think, uh, you know, pretty clearly history has shown that uh, it, that was a mistake. And we're unfortunately still, it's still there and we're still paying the price for it. And it, it'll take many, many years to uh, undo the harm we've done to uh, our standing in the world by turning our back on the principles that we uh, purported to, to represent. In 2009, Barack Obama promised to close Guantanamo Bay, but it's still open to this day. Why has it proved so difficult to close, particularly in light of what you've mentioned there about how the existence of it in the first place goes against everything America stood for? Right. Yeah, and let me make it clear, too. The, the, the uniformed services, you know, the people actually serving in the military at the highest levels, the four stars, the three stars, were unanimously opposed to establishing a detention facility at Guantanamo. It was the political appointees, you know, people that never served a day in their life in harm's way who made the decision. So they effectively shut out the military from making the decisions when they didn't get the answers that they wanted. Um, the military was also opposed uh, to uh, torture, or back then what we called enhanced interrogation techniques. You know, one of the things you'll notice is that it, the detainees at Guantanamo are referred to as unlawful enemy combatants. Uh, that was a term that was created by the Bush administration because it's a term that does not appear anywhere in the Geneva Conventions. Because prisoners of war, which is the term used in the Geneva Conventions, uh, POWs have rights. And they wanted to try to make sure that these guys had no rights. And again, you know, history has shown that the courts, the U.S. courts did intervene and the detainees do have rights. Uh, so it was a false premise to begin with, but it, it became a political issue. Um, if you recall back in 2008 during the presidential election, that was uh, John McCain and Barack Obama were the, the two candidates. And they both uh, ran on a platform of closing Guantanamo. So it at a point in time, closing it was a nonpartisan issue. So when Obama took office on January 20th of uh, 2009, uh, one of the first things he did was sign the order to close Guantanamo. And, and I think in his mind, he thought that, you know, once he had put his signature on the order, that it was a, a done deal. Uh, what he didn't anticipate was on the other side, you had Mitch McConnell and the Republicans saying that their objective was to make him 
a one-term president. So whatever he was for, they were against. So, you know, I've, I've joked over the years that if, uh, in hindsight, if Obama really wanted to close Guantanamo, he should have said he loved it and would keep it open forever. And then the Republicans would have insisted it be closed by the end of February. Um, but it became a political issue. And it, it's unfortunate because um, in September of 2006 is when uh, the, the high-value detainees that had been in the CIA black sites were transferred to Guantanamo. And we didn't know how many people would be getting off the airplane that day, but there, there were 14 that came from the CIA black sites. Since then, there's only one of the 14 who has been tried, convicted, sentenced, and his case has been appealed all the way through the U.S. Supreme Court, and the case is now over and done forever. And that was Ahmed Galani, who was involved in the uh, two the East Africa embassy bombings of the two embassies there. And he's the only detainee ever to be brought to the United States and prosecuted in federal district court. And Galani was convicted in 2010, so a decade ago. Meanwhile, the other 13 guys that got off the plane with him that day in September of 06 are still sitting at Guantanamo, and they're still caught up in the, you know, the, the continuing saga of the military commissions. And it's unfortunate because you've got, uh, uh, you know, the family members of the 9-11 victims who have, you know, for a, over, you know, this could have been over and done. They could have had some closure a decade ago had these cases been tried in federal court. But instead, over the years, over the past decade, you know, some of the victim family members have passed away. And some of those, the government, are, they're doing video depositions of some of the 9-11 victim family members to preserve their testimony because they may not live long enough to see the end of the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the other 9-11 co-conspirators. So uh, it's just unfortunate. It became a political issue. and. We've squandered not only our reputation, but billions of dollars uh, that could have gone to you know, things that uh, were good for America rather than bad for it. But, you know, I never thought, you know, I resigned in uh, October of uh, 2007, and I never thought that in 2020, I mean, I thought by now we'd be talking about Guantanamo in the past tense, not in the present tense. So I don't think anyone uh, ever anticipated that, uh, uh, it would still be an ongoing issue, but unfortunately it is. You resigned from that position after you refused to use evidence that had been obtained through torture. Do you believe that there's ever, ever any justification for the use of these enhanced interrogation techniques, as they were referred to, or as most of us would call it, torture, against prisoners or enemy combatants or whatever the US government wants to define them as? Yeah, no, torture, you know, in the, in the, uh, uh, the Convention Against Torture, and again, you know, the United States is one of the leaders in enacting the Convention Against Torture, and in, you know, the opening paragraph, it says there's, there's no justification whatsoever for torture, period. And, you know, those that have argued, I, I recall, uh, uh, back in, you know, when, when Osama bin Laden was killed, uh, the, the two nights after that, I was on Pierce Morgan's show on CNN with uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz. And it was over the issue, because, you know, some were claiming that it was because Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was tortured, that we eventually, you know, seven or eight years later found Osama bin Laden. And that was you know, nonsense, but that was the argument. 
Well, we were on there. I was arguing that uh, there's never an appropriate circumstance for torture, and Professor Dershowitz uh, was arguing that while it's morally reprehensible, it's effective, and we got to do it. I've, you know, I, to this day, I've never seen anyone that could cite anything good that came from torture. You know, torture is a great way to make people talk. It's a lousy way to make people tell the truth. And when it comes to collecting intelligence, you want the truth, not, uh, you know, just uh, words coming out of someone's mouth. Yeah, I think the best example of that is you know, the U.S. involvement in Iraq. If you recall, when you know, Colin Powell went to the United Nations and made the case on why it was necessary to invade Iraq, it was the connection between uh, the, you know, the alleged connection between Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction. So, you know, we invaded and it became apparent that uh, you know, that was a false premise. And so they went back to the guy that had provided that information, a guy named Ibn Sheikh al-Libi, who at the time was in custody in Egypt. And they went back to him and said, hey, you know, why did you lie about you know, this connection between al-Qaeda and Saddam and weapons of mass destruction? And he said, well, you were torturing me. I wanted you to stop. So I told you what you wanted to hear. So I can show you, you know, that's to me concrete evidence of the harm that torture can do because it's led to us being involved in Iraq, uh, you know, for the last you know, coming up on 20 years nearly. Uh, and again, I challenge anyone on the other side to show you something good that came from, from torture. So, you know, we were right when we advocated for the Convention Against Torture and said there's no justification whatsoever for it. And we should have lived up to, uh, to that principle rather than turning our back on it. So on that note about the actions that occurred at Guantanamo, you obviously raised concerns about what was going on and the military opposed what had occurred, the enhanced interrogation techniques. Between 2010 and 2012, you were the executive director of the Crimes of War Education Project, a collaboration of journalists, lawyers, scholars, dedicated to raising public awareness worldwide of the laws of war and their application to situations of armed conflict. How concerned are you that the U.S. government could be in breach of international agreements such as the Geneva Convention due to the mistreatment of prisoners at Guantanamo, in CIA black sites, and so on? Well, the U.S. government should be accountable for its conduct. Uh, that's where I think in hindsight that uh, uh, you know, President Obama, when he came into office, um, you know, again, you have to look back at the times. You know, when, he, when he took office, we were in the midst of the Great Recession. So the economy was you know, in a tailspin at the time. Uh, Health care was his top priority. And shortly after taking office, you know, he, he had a choice on whether to uh, try to hold members of the Bush administration, you know, Dick Cheney and, and Donald Rumsfeld and others that put us on this path whether to hold them accountable or, or not. And that's when he, you know, he made the statement about, you know, it's time, it, you know, we were in a difficult circumstances at the time and we needed to look forward and not back. And I think, you know, if you sat down with him now and, and talked with him, I think he might say that was a mistake because by not, uh, you know, there's an obligation that uh, if you violate the law of war, if you violate the convention against torture, that, 
there's accountability for that. And, you know, you've, you've seen, there are folks that have been, been uh, both, you know, here in the last couple of years, there, there are folks that were involved in, you know, some of the atrocities committed by the Nazis back in the 1940s, you know, men that were, you know, in their 90s that are still being occasionally found and held accountable. So that's why I think you see people like Dick Cheney that do a lot of international traveling uh, because, you know, war crimes are uh, extraterritorial jurisdiction and there's no statute of limitations. So I, I think it was a mistake that the Obama administration made taking that look forward, not back approach. And I think we're still paying the price for that because now we have President Trump, who's the, you know, just pays attention to no laws, domestic or international, and is, you know, when he campaigned, said that, you know, waterboarding would be, uh, you know, like a day in the park compared to things, you know, he was willing to do. So I, I think by not uh, having accountability then, we've just postponed it. And uh, at some point we need to, there needs to be a reckoning for uh, for what we did because it's, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't live up to the commitments we made or the principles that, that we espouse. So we need to... Uh, we, we need to get back to the America that we were prior to 9-11 and uh, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk on uh, the principles that we claim we support. You stated that the Republican Party is in lockstep with President Donald Trump while he's, quote, embraced murderous dictators like Vladimir Putin, allowed North Korea and Iran to move forward with building nuclear arsenals, abandoned the Kurds who fought for us in Syria and allowed them to be slaughtered and ignored the murder of a Washington Post columnist that was ordered by Saudi Arabia Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. That's a quote from your website. Mm -hmm. Are they enabling a president who's putting America's national security at risk? Why are they not surely standing up to Donald Trump and saying, I swore an oath to my country, I'm going to uphold that and what's in the best interest of my constituents? Well, in my view, they should be. Uh, I think, you know, if you're in if you're in public office and you're not willing to lose your job over doing what's in the public's interest, then you shouldn't be in public office to begin with. And you've got too many. I, I wish I could explain the conduct of uh, many in the Republican Party. I, you know, when I joined the military back in, it was 1983, I, I did my, you know, I was an attorney in the JAG Corps, and I did my first trial in the spring of 1984, and my opponent on the other side, uh, the attorney uh, was a, a young captain from South Carolina named Lindsey Graham, and I, you know, I stayed in touch, uh, uh, Senator Graham stayed in the Air Force Reserves and retired as a colonel, and so I saw him from, you know, I first met him in 1984 and saw him regularly uh, over the years. Uh, I used to, when I was in the D.C. area, I, I used to be uh, uh, do national security commentary on a number of the, the networks, including occasionally on Fox News. And I would I would see him in the green room at Fox. And he was still the guy that that I knew from 1984. And if you recall, I mean, there was no more vocal critic of candidate Trump than Lindsey Graham. But now there is no one more in lockstep and, you know, turning a blind eye to the, uh, you know, to, to the Trump administration than, than Lindsey Graham. But I think folks are, you know, uh, Tom Tillis, who's, uh, we talked about Richard Burr earlier, our other senator here in North Carolina is Tom Tillis. And back when, you know, again, I think, uh, you know, Trump abandoning the Kurds, 
Um, you know, I won't live long enough to say it's undo the damage that that did. Because, I mean, why would anyone trust America when, you know, you fought, your people fought and died and bled uh, for America, you know, to fight ISIS. And then at the end of the day, we, you know, pack up our tents and leave and, you know, leave you to be, uh, you know, abused by, uh, by the Turks and others. But uh, it, uh, I don't know, it's just, Tom Tillis, you know, back when there was a resolution in the Senate uh, on, uh, you know, the Trump administration's policy in Syria, which you know, included abandoning Kurds. And Tom Tillis did a, a an op-ed in the Washington Post that I totally agreed with, you know, condemning the administration and saying it was a, an abandon of, abandonment of American principles. And then Trump hate tweeted, you know, a couple of times about Tillis. And, you know, a few days later, Tillis voted in lockstep with Trump. You know, did a 180 on what he'd written in the op-ed. So uh, I think enough Republicans have seen their colleagues try to you know, attempt to stand up to Trump. And then Trump, you know, hate tweets them and they're, he has a loyal base. And you know, apparently keeping their jobs is more important than doing their jobs for uh, many of the Republicans serving in both the House and the Senate. So it's, it's really disappointing. I mean, you know, when... The founding fathers created the Constitution. The uh, the legislature was supposed to be a check and balance on the executive, you know, not a not a rubber stamp. But uh, you know, I think the one good thing that's happened is the Democrats taking over a majority in the House. I hate, I hate to think what would have happened over the last couple of years if uh, there was a Republican majority in both the House and the Senate. It really would be a totally, you know, unchecked executive power. On the issue of national security, in recent years, there have been several examples of whistleblowers leaking classified information for what they believe are justified reasons. We've seen Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, reality winner. Do you ever believe that whistleblowers like these individuals are justified in sharing classified information? And how should the U.S. respond to these individuals? Should they be prosecuted locked away and have the key thrown away? Should they be treated as some believe as national heroes who've outed what they believe is wrongdoing? How should they be treated? Yeah, that's really a, a, a tough question. And I don't think it's one where you can have a, a blanket uh, you know, policy or position that applies universally. I mean, if, for example, Daniel Ellsberg, who you know, I know, uh, you know was the, that was the Pentagon Papers, you know, that he... And that was back in the old days where you had to physically stand at a copier and make copies and then smuggle those out of the Pentagon to shed light on, you know, U.S. policy and what it actually was versus what the public was being told. And I think history will, you know, remember Daniel Ellsberg well. Um, you know, I guess more recently we had uh, Br Bradley Manning and now Chelsea Manning. I, I was an expert witness in that trial. Because uh, part of the documents that Private Manning you know, had uh, given to uh, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange were, were documents from Guantanamo. And the reason I was an expert is uh, I, I was an expert for Manning, for the defense. And what they had me do was to take the documents, the classified documents that uh, he was charged with uh, having disseminated, and I sat down and, and went out open source on the Internet. I tried to see how much of the classified information I could find uh, available publicly on the Internet. 
and I don't recall exactly what the number was, but it was somewhere in the vicinity of 95% of the information was publicly available on open source, um, through open source methods. And in some cases, the open source information was more accurate than the classified information. So in, like in that case, I never argued that private manning was, uh, you know, shouldn't be held accountable, but it ought to be, uh, you know, viewed in the context of, of you know, what was, you know, the, the, what was the harm and what, what harm did, I mean, I don't think anyone can point to anything uh, concrete harm that uh, America suffered as a result of, uh, of Manning's conduct. Um, so I think it's a difficult question. I think in the end, it's going to be you know, history is going to decide uh, whether whistleblowers are, are uh, you know, heroes or villains. Um, and I think, you know, for a lot of folks, uh, the ones you mentioned, like Snowden and Reality Winner and others, it'll, uh, it's too early to tell. But certainly, I think for some like Daniel Ellsberg, it, uh, you know, the, the, the public benefit of knowing the truth uh, outweighed the, you know, any harm that would have been from the disclosure of the information. I, I can tell you, having worked, you know, in, in the classified uh, world for a long time is, you know, it's a process that in many cases is, is abused and in some cases uh, used not to legitimately protect uh, information that can cause harm to national security, but to avoid embarrassment uh, to the government or to elected officials. So, um, I don't know. This, you know it, it's, it's a tough issue where I don't think I can give you a, a bright line rule that would apply across the board. You've talked about how you grew up hunting and worked as a bail bondsman while armed. You served in the military. You own guns. So no one can call you anti-gun. But you do support common sense gun control legislation. While there are many people who'd agree with you, it's a winning issue in America amongst the population. It's clear that the Republican Party will block any attempt to pass such legislation through Congress. In fact, common sense gun control legislation is currently sat on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's desk, ready to be voted on by the Senate. If elected, how would you convince your colleagues on the other side of the aisle that stricter gun control legislation is the right thing to do, if at all you believe you can convince them? I think they, I think there there is a good case to be made that uh, is persuasive on either side of the aisle. I mean, you, you can't deny the fact that, uh, well, as an example, you know, on 9/11 there were 3,000 people were killed, and we took extraordinary measures. I mean, uh, Americans uh, were willing to give up many of their civil liberties. Uh, like I used to, when I was teaching, I taught at uh, Howard University at the law school. And I told my students that it, you know, they were too young to remember what 9-10 was like because they grew up in the post-9-11 era. On, on 9-10, on September 10th, if you went to the airport and somebody was patting down your groin, that was called a sexual assault, not pre-boarding, because you know, that just wasn't something that anyone could fathom that uh, you know, Americans would be willing to go through. For security, but you know, then 9/11 happened, and there are a lot of things that we've accepted as part of life that are now routine uh, in order to try to prevent another attack like happened that day. And again, it's tragic that 3,000 people lost their lives. 
But since 9-11, there have been 200 times that number of Americans that have lost their lives to gunshots. And we have done absolutely nothing about it. So, you know, as you said, I've, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here at my house and I've got guns in the house. So I'm not anti-gun, but I think you have to be responsible. I mean, it's a deadly weapon. And if you're going to uh, you know, exercise the right to possess the deadly weapon, then you need to be responsible in the way that you, you handle it. So um, my position has been that, uh, you know, with a pistol, a rifle, a shotgun, you know, traditional weapons, that you have a constitutional right to those, but with a thorough background check uh, to make sure that you know your your criminal record, your mental health record, uh, there are no indications, no red flags that show that uh, you know you don't have the uh, ability to be a responsible gun owner, and also with red flag laws that if you're uh, if you're arrested for an act of violence or hospitalized for a, a severe mental issue that uh, you potentially could, uh, your right to possess those kind of weapons could be taken away. If you want something above that, like an assault rifle, which is you know, the big issue, uh, I think uh, that we have a law here in North Carolina for concealed carry permit. So if you want to, uh, you know, anyone can you know, strap on a pistol and go downtown and go to Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee, and that's permissible. But if you want to conceal carry that weapon, then you have to apply for a permit. And to do that, you you pay a fee, you file the application, there's a thorough check of your criminal record or your mental health record. You have to pay to attend an eight-hour gun safety course, and you have to take a test at the end of the course that you have to pass. And you have to sign saying that uh, in the future, if you're arrested for an act of violence or hospitalized for a mental issue, that it's reported to the authorities. And that's been, you know, that law has been in effect here in North Carolina, and you haven't seen, uh, you know, much uproar. You know, you haven't seen the, you know, the far right, you know, the gun nut crowd saying, oh, that's too onerous a requirement. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's had pretty broad appeal. I think people like me that are, you know, gun owners and are responsible gun owners aren't opposed to reasonable uh, steps to uh, to prevent harm to the public. So what I, would, what I would propose as a member of Congress is taking that North Carolina concealed carry permit process and make that a national process that if you want a weapon, you know, something above a regular pistol, rifle, shotgun, then you would go through that type of process. And I think what that would do is number one, I think it seems like a lot of folks are, are buying assault weapons just to make a statement. You know, they want to put it on their shoulder. And you know, there was a big rally up in Richmond, Virginia, not too long ago, where a bunch of, you know, just to intimidate people, you know, people threw their assault rifle over their shoulder and paraded down the road. I think a lot of those folks, if they had to go through the hassle and expense of going through the permit process, they, uh, they might not do it. And I think it would screen out some of the people that uh, just lack the uh, the ability to be a responsible gun owner. You know, I, I recognize that's not a perfect solution, but you know, we've done absolutely nothing, and so that does something. And in, in addition to that, I'd also propose strict liability. You know, whether it's for a, a pistol or a, an assault rifle, 
that if a weapon is, if your weapon is uh, stolen or lost and used in an act of violence, that, and it wasn't, you know, the evidence shows that it was not properly locked and uh, secured, then you should be responsible, strictly liable for the consequences. Uh, you know, to drive a car here, you have to have liability insurance to insure against the potential harm your vehicle will do. Well, if you're irresponsible with your gun, you should be liable for that as well. So, um, I would, you know, I, again, I think if, if you apply the concealed carry permit requirements nationwide for assault weapons, impose strict liability. And then also I, I would propose a buyback program for folks that you know, bought assault rifles and, you know, the novelty has worn off and they, you know, rather than sell it on the open market, that the government would buy it back. You know, I think those steps, uh, you know, we're never going to eradicate gun violence, but I think we could certainly make a dent in it. And uh, I've met too many folks that have had family members or, or they themselves have been victims of gun violence. And, you know, any, you know, any, any number that we can prevent is, uh, is a good thing. So I, I believe in being, uh, you know, the argument on the other side is that slippery slope argument that if you do anything, uh, with respect to guns, and next thing you know, the government's going to kick your door down and take away all your weapons, and that's nonsense. In fact, you know, I don't know if you saw one of the, one of the Republican candidates that was running in the primary uh, had a television ad where it was him standing over a stack of cheeseburgers holding a gun, and he said, the liberal Democrats are coming to take away your guns and your cheeseburgers, and I'm going to go to Washington and stand with Donald Trump to stop them. And... Uh, at one of the events, that person was there, and I got to speak after him. I said, look, you know, I am a liberal Democrat, and I've got a gun and a grill, so I'm not opposed to guns or cheeseburgers. So I think it's just a matter of applying common sense. And I think, uh, you know, you mentioned, I think, I forgot what the statistic is, but it's like, you know, in excess of three-quarters of the country supports common sense uh, gun requirements, like background checks. So uh, I think those that are opposed are, uh, you know, uh, on the wrong side of history and I think on the wrong side of the, the majority of the voters. What would be your closing message to voters in North Carolina's 11th congressional district? What's your rallying cry to get them to come out and vote for you on the 3rd of November 2020? Well, I grew up in North Carolina when we were a proud, progressive, forward-leaning southern state. Where we had good roads and good schools and we had researched Triangle Park before anybody ever heard of Silicon Valley. And the Republicans have spent the last decade trying to roll back the clock. In this area, uh, North Carolina's 11th district, a majority of the counties are above the national average in poverty. They're above the national average in the number of uh, in people that are uninsured and have no health care coverage. Uh, our school kids rank in the bottom third of the country in reading and math. So you've given the Republicans a chance, and you can look around and you can see the results. So uh, my argument is... Uh, Give me two years, and if I don't uh, show that uh, your life and your kids' life and your grandkids' futures are better, then you can fire me in uh, November of 2022. But uh, you can see what's happened over the past 10 years, so uh, I believe we can be that proud, progressive state that uh, I grew up in, and uh, that's why I'm asking them to, uh, to vote for me. Colonel Mo Davis, thank you for joining me. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Colonel Mo Davis. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Colonel Morris Davis and at MoDavisForCongress.com. 
you can now support the Harder Report podcast by giving five, ten, or twenty dollars a month to the show at patreon.com forward slash the Hardy Report. Also, if you'd like to recommend this podcast by submitting reviews online or by sharing it with friends and family, we'd really appreciate it. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.